So we're going to be in uh, uh, Revelation chapter 2 and get into the, uh, the letter to the church in Ephesus tonight. But before we get there, one of the things that I do is different questions that you all ask. I do think about them throughout the week and, uh, and mold them over in my, in my brain. And one of those uh, things that I've been thinking about is when we were talking about in chapter 1 of verse 10, this verse, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And of course the question is, you know, what does that phrase mean of in the Spirit? What was happening to John at that time? That was the question. And so I've been thinking about that, and some of it, if you, if you heard on, on Sunday, last Sunday morning, talking about what that means to be, uh, how Jesus says, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father, and what that word means, is the same word that is used here of in the Spirit. And here is some, if you want some technical stuff, here's some technical stuff. That word in, that is translated in, is the Greek word en, E-N. And it has 12 different meanings. And so what you do is, is I didn't bring, I was going to bring all my uh, books, uh, but I guess you may have to take a field trip to my office if you want to see this. Um, so what you do is, either you pull out, if you want to know a word, what a word means in English, what, do you, what book do you pull out? Dictionary. dictionary, go to dictionary.com, type it in, they'll give you the meaning. In, in other languages, we, uh, we have the same tool, what's called a lexicon, which is, uh, it's the, um, gives you the Greek word and then gives you the English meaning of this is what it means and this is how it's translated. And so it has 12 different meanings. Some of it simply means, you know, in, like we are in the building, that's one way, uh, and so forth. And so as you come across this word in, in like the Greek, you have to ask yourself, okay, from context, what does this word mean? And then you people think, well, I just do a word study. Well, have you ever tried to do the word study on 2,731 verses? That is impossible. You don't do that. And again, and, and then how we know that it is used that many times, that's just the New Testament. How you know it's only used that many times because in, in the... In English, if you want to know, you know, what English words or how it's versus words are translated, you pull out what's called a concordance. And so you look up, um, you want to see every single verse in the English Bible of, of where the word Jesus or the name Jesus is. You look up the name Jesus in English concordance and it will list you from Matthew to Revelation every single verse that has in. You do the same thing with a Greek concordance and if you count them up, uh, I did not count them. I started counting them and got to 300, and I said, this is ridiculous. So I Googled how many times, and according to some Bible scholar, this is how many times. So I'm taking the Bible scholar's word and not, but I can show you if you want to know every single verse. I do have that um, in my book. And so one of the things that's interesting is one of the phrases that this is one a particular popular especially in Paul and John where it says in Christ that's usually Paul's fame in Christ we are in Christ we are to walk in the spirit and so whenever Paul and John uses that Greek word in it's talking about this marker of close association particularly this the the reference of the in term is viewed as a controlling influence and so the understanding of oh we are in Christ. In other words, in our salvation, Christ is controlling us. We are under the influence of Christ. We are to walk in the Spirit. We are to walk with the Spirit controlling us under the influence. That's even what Paul says, very similar to what Paul said, you know, don't be drunk with wine, but be literally drunk or being controlled by whom? The Spirit of God. And so... In verse 10, if you apply this thinking to chapter 1, verse 10, this is what you can say, that John was being controlled or influenced by the Spirit. And then if you look more closely at the verse, and this is, this is how the NIV that uh, I read it, on the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. That's usually how English translations do it. 
But if you were to do a literal translation, if you were to open up, if you all had the ability to open up your Greek and, and Greek, the Greek, when the Greek is written, it doesn't follow our English order, uh, which is not a big deal. Uh, some people get kind of whacked out about that. It's just how it is. If you were to literally translate how the verse is, how the Greek is written, this is the order it would be. I came in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And if you do a comparison, on the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, I came in the Spirit on... So you did that comparison. And the reason why this is important is because it kind of gives us the order. So if you look at the literal one, it says on, that usually what we think of in our minds, we think, oh, it's, it's on the Lord's Day, it's Sunday, and then, and then he, he was in the Spirit. Where verse 10, kind of the first thing happens where? What? He's in the Spirit. On the Lord's Day, it just kind of explains this is something that happened to me on Sunday, a particular Sunday. And because I was in the Spirit, I heard this voice and behind me, and I like a voice of a trumpet. In other words, he got my attention, a loud voice, and I turn, and of course, he sees the vision of Jesus. Applying all that, here is what I think the meaning of that. So on the Lord's Day, while John was on the island of Patmos, he became under the influence of the Holy Spirit so that he was able to see the vision of Jesus among the seven lampstands. Again, this is not, he's not just on the island by himself. He, there's other prisoners. It's Sunday. Who knows? Maybe they got the day off, or just maybe he was, who knows the whole situation. That's all speculation. But in order for him to see this vision, and in order for him to see this, these visions that God was going to reveal to him, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of him. He's controlled by it. And God opens his eyes to see this. If someone walks by John in the same cave or whatever, they're not going to be like, Hey, uh, John, seven golden lampstands. Uh, where did you get these from? No one else sees this vision. It's just John. And the only way he can see this vision is is how that understanding of he is in the Spirit. He is being controlled by the Spirit. He is being influenced by the Spirit. He is having the Holy Spirit opening his physical eyes to the spiritual world to be able to see what God has for him to tell the church. So all I'll just say, maybe we, we wish there was a little bit more spiritualism, spiritual stuff going on there, but I think it's more along those lines is that uh, as he is on there's a Sunday and as he is there on Patmos the Holy Spirit comes upon him opens his eyes and he begins to see what God has the message that God has for the seven churches so uh, something to think about uh, any questions about all that I'm going to throw one out there yeah <laughs> don't some translations say um, be filled with the Holy Spirit instead of being drunk yes that's usually how because the reason why our English translations usually say that is because we don't our culture, English culture, we don't like we don't we don't like to think about being drunk in the spirit. But literally Paul uses the same Greek word uh, for both of them. And the understanding is, you know, when you are drunk with alcohol, what happens to you? You lose control. And people and and to the point where you have a lot of times people will wake up the next morning and they're thinking, I don't even know what I did. There's no recollection of what I did during this time. And, and Paul uses that as to say, this is how we should live as Christians to the point where as we live, we are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit in our daily lives. That we give up complete surrender to him and say, I'm yours. And that's the and that's the understanding of what Paul is saying there. The same thing, same thing that happens in the Book of Acts when Peter uh, is there and he sees the vision. I mean, if it's not, if it's not, if the, if in and of ourselves we cannot see the spiritual realm unless we get unless God opens our eyes. 
and and and, and that's this understanding of being controlled, being influenced, being where where God is allowing him to see this uh, vision of who Jesus is. Yeah. Well, seeing that you get into uh, some interesting uh, things when you get into all that, um, and and again, some of it is Paul deals a lot with that in First uh, Corinthians chapter twelve, thirteen, and fourteen about these gifts of the Holy Spirit and 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 what that looks like. But then you also have to keep in mind that if we're really if we really are being controlled by the Spirit the way Paul talks about, it's, it's more along the lines of what Paul says in Galatians, of, you know, walk in the Spirit, which is the same understanding there. Is, and, and Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, this is how, when you walk in the Spirit, this is what's going to happen to your life. It's interesting what happens to your life in Galatians 5. It's the fruit of the Spirit, not the gifts of the Spirit. Which is an interesting side of it. Is, and, and that's one of the things in Corinth that I know we, uh, is they, because of their, their background in coming out of paganism, they desired so much to look at these, what, what we call supernatural gifts, like speaking in tongues, like healings, like... Uh, which is interesting because our, our culture is just like that, where where they're very focused on these supernatural gifts. And Paul says, why are you seeking those? Don't you realize that there's better gifts than those, other than the speaking in tongues? I And that's what Paul says. He says, I would rather speak in, in one, one, use one word that, that people can, because again, the whole gifts of the Holy Spirit is not to emphasize ourselves, it's to build up the body of Christ. And so if you are being controlled by the Spirit, well, Paul, again, Paul said in Galatians 5, the overflow of that is that you're going to live a life that is pleasing and honoring to Christ. And, and, uh, and so forth. So I know that uh, we got way off track in, from Revelation, but uh, yeah, it's uh, good things to think about. Yep. Okay. Um, well, I have this uh, app that yep. does, it, it's the Berean Study Bible. Yeah. And it does the Greek, so apparently... Yeah. Um, so what I'm thinking is really what you need is a Greek Bible. Because you have to start from the Greek, if you're starting from a translation, because they have filled. And I'm like, wait, wait, if you're using yeah. a different Greek word for that, yeah. you start with a Greek Bible and go from there. Yeah, it is, <laughs> but it's, and that's why, that's why it's important to compare different English translations. Uh, because each English translation has their what's called the philosophy. In fact, stick your finger, and we'll get to Revelation after this. So, stick your finger there in Revelation. Turn with me to the very first page in your Bible. That will say, what does it say? The very first page in your Bible, the Holy Bible. At least that's what mine says. Very, very first page. You open it up and it says, and it, no, not, not in the Genesis. The very first page. This is what's called a title page. Okay? So if you flip, if you flip, if you flip to a table of contents, and then you come usually to what's called a preface or a preface before you even get to Genesis. Most people don't even realize that Bibles have a preface or a preface in them. Most people, yeah, note to readers. There you go. Most people don't even read these. Um, they skip over them. Except for like people like me that uh, even books I read, introductions and prefaces, Margaret's always like, why do you read those things? I said, because they're important. And this is why, this is why English translations have this. It's because if you want to know what the mindset or what the philosophy is of the Bible translators, they will tell you in here. They will tell you the history. And so like, this is the NIV. And so they go through and they explain, you know, as we were translating the NIV, this is the approach we took. Uh, we, 
this is the, 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 the version of the Greek uh, New Testament. They, they also tell you a little bit about the history. The complete NIV Bible was first trans published in 1978 and blah, 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 blah. So, so all that. All I have to say is people ask me all the time, there's hundreds of English translations. Which one is correct? And I will say all of them. There are some bad ones. Um, like uh, there's this new one that's out um, that is the Passion Translation. If you have that, uh, uh, throw it away. Do not even donate it to Goodwill. Uh, because what they did with that is they actually, it's, they almost did like what the Jehovah's Witnesses did. Where they actually... Uh, will change verses on purpose to match their theology with the Passion Translation. But, so you have like all these English translations like the NIV, the English Standard Version, the King James Version, the New King James Version, the, uh, the Word, the, uh, um, the New Living Translation, the, tra uh, the, li the Living Translation, the, and so forth. There's tons of them. If you want to know how they're, they're approached, and, and is it, did they approach it in the sense of word for word? Meaning, we looked at the Greek text, and the order that the Greek words are in, we kind of followed that. Kind of hard to read in English, but those are good study Bibles. So you're thinking of like uh, the King James Version, the New International uh, Study Bible, the, the English Standard uh, Version, and, and so forth the Revised Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, uh, and so forth. The New King James Version. Then you have kind of what's called the NIV where they, they do more thought for thought. They look at the Greek and they say, oh, okay, this is how the Greek says. Now, now let's kind of put that into modern English more thought for thought. That's the NIV, the New Living Translation, kind of the middle of the road. And then you have what's called the paraphrase is, is like the... the the uh, message which you're reading, sometimes you're thinking, are they even reading the same Bible? Uh, because what they do is they take it and they say, this is the meaning of the Greek text. Now, how do I explain it to, into the meaning of, of today's culture? And they will then translate that way. Living translation. Psalm 119, verse 11. Does anybody know what that verse says? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. The living translation will say this. Your word is a flashlight to my feet and a light to my path. Why? Because it was written for kids and they don't know what a lamp is. They know what a flashlight is. And so that's why you have different... But the prefaces tell you all that. So all that to say... That is a rabbit trail that we went down that uh, is, uh, is a good one. And so, going back to Revelation now, let's go down another rabbit trail. Because this is another interesting that thing happens now. So, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, we have verse 1 saying this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. And here's the question. What in the world is those the seven angels referring to? The word, and here's again a little more technical stuff here. The Greek word that you find there is angelos, which is where we get our word angel, but it also means messenger. And so the question becomes is is this, okay, who what what's the identity of these angels or messengers? And there's really three suggestions, and, and we're going to work our way through these three suggestions and, and uh, give you some maybe um, things to think about. Um, probably, won't, probably won't nail anything down. You'll just have to think about these things. Number one, they say they're angels or guardian angels of the churches. And, and typically, that's sometimes what we think about is, oh, these are the angels of these churches. And then sometimes you may hear pastors or, or people will say, all churches have angels up in heaven that are kind of like the guardians and, and so forth. The problem with that view is this. There is no biblical evidence outside of this book of Revelation to show that uh, 
churches have guardian angels. There's not an angel up in heaven that is guarding the Bedford Alliance Church there before, before God. Um, but again, that's, that, is, that is a very popular view. Another one is this, is that they're just taken symbolically. That's one of the things that is so, is so uh, again, one of the questions we always ask, ask ourselves, and we'll get, especially when we get into chapter 4, 5, and 6, and all the way through the rest, what, is, what can we take literally, and what is symbolic? And if it's symbolic, then we need to not read it literally. Uh, and that's because you can get some crazy understanding of the book of Revelation. Don't read into it exactly. And so, so it could just be a simple fact that, hey, these are just, and that's just the way uh, Jesus described them. I have the seven angels in, in, uh, in, in um, the, the, my right hand, and, and they're, just, they're not real angels. They're just, that's just the word they use. And that's kind of uh, the understanding of symbolizing the actual churches. The third view is this. Because of that word messenger, it's referring to the earthly representative of the churches. In the early church, it is, it is seen as the church in Ephesus, or to the believers in Ephesus. And, and they were, in the early church, in the book of Acts, where did the, early, where did the believers meet together? In homes. And so you would have, you may have a couple house churches, and that's what sometimes in the larger cities like like uh, Romans, you would they Paul say, no, greet this uh, this uh, a group of believers or church that that gathers in this person's home and that person's home and so forth. And so, could it be the simple fact of these earthly representatives of churches, like like what we call pastor? Uh, New Testament also calls them the overseer or elders uh, of of the church. Again, that physical. It is interesting when you when you do a, a study on that word angelos or angel or messengers. There are times when it talks about you know spiritual angels that show up and and but there also is interesting is how that term is used in a couple places dealing with messengers. If someone could look up Luke chapter seven verse twenty four. And someone else look up Luke chapter 9, verse 52. Luke 7, 24. And then someone else, Luke 9, 52. After John's disciples left, Jesus began talking about him to the crowd. What kind of man would you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak, reed, swayed by every breath of wind? So you said after John's, what's your word right after John's? Disciple. disciple left. Does anybody else have another word for disciple there? After John's messengers. messengers. Anybody else? That word messenger or other English translations will say disciple is the word angelos. So again, when it's talking about human, human beings, we translate it as messengers. When it's talking about spiritual beings, we translate it, or usually translate it as angels. Um, the other one, Luke chapter 9, verse 52. This is Jesus, as he's heading towards Jerusalem, Jesus sends what ahead of him? Messengers. That word messengers is angelos. And so that's the, some of these verses that people will point to to refer when you look at Revelation. When you look at these three, these three things, suggestions, um, it's one of those things like we just don't really know. Um, and so, but in, in, a real, in the scheme of things, does it really matter? No. Probably not. I mean, because it's the message that they are supposed to take to these churches. That's the real important part, and that's the and and so and the, and the reason why I bring all this up is, is again to kind of teach us as we get further in the Revelation that you know 
sometimes you can get so focused on the details that you forget the message of why it's being written. And so, who knows? You can have debates with whoever you want to do with that, but, uh, but at the same time, it's, it's okay to simply say, who knows? In the scheme of things, it's not really that important uh, how we take that, but the message is. And so that's what we want to turn to next is this message. And every single one of these that we'll look at over these uh, next, the seven churches, every single one has a very similar structure. And this is kind of, um, it's interesting that and depending on who you read or, or Google or listen to, some of them will have seven points like this one. Some of them will group them together and may only have like two or three uh, parts of it. Uh, but this is a little more in-depth. Uh, and it is interesting when you start looking at the seven churches. Most of them will have this order. There is a one or two that you're like, oh, uh, number four is is not uh, taken out because there are a couple letters that are very positive where Jesus doesn't really say too much negative about them but is rejoicing over the fact of what they're doing uh, and so uh, this is first one was written to the town of, of which one in verse one Ephesus. Ephesus Ephesus is the most important city in Asia Minor it was, here is a, a picture of what an artist thinks of what Ephesus uh, looks like. Um, it was right on the sea. It was a very impressive city. It was a very wealthy city uh, because of it being right along the sea. And it was the main port. So if you wanted to get into the area of Asia Minor, with trade or anything, everything had to go through through Ephesus if it would have came from from both, and so it was a very uh, wealthy uh, uh, city as well. It was also a very spiritual city. This is a famous temple. They might know what the god they worshipped in, Zeus? not Zeus, ah. Artemis, the temple of Artemis, and. And it was very, yes, they worshipped Artemis, but it was, it was, you know, when you, when you start reading about, like, their, their worship of these gods, I mean, they were, yeah, it was like, no wonder the church in Corinth was so screwed up, um, because they came out of this, and they thought, oh, worshiping Jesus is just like worshiping uh, all these other Greek gods and Paul's like are you out of your mind like this is not the case uh, if you go to um, Ephesus today this is the big theater that and you can see uh, the the size of that uh, theater that they would do which is if you see in this picture that big theater back there um, sat somewhere around 30,000 people that they would just flock to to do plays and Greek plays and things like that. Uh, and then again, you can just see this modern day. And that is the remains of, of the temple. And you just see the size of it. But Ephesus is in modern day. Does anybody know? Turkey. Modern day Turkey. So... So you still can go and you can walk these streets where, where uh, Paul and, and John uh, walked. And so as we turn to the letter, uh, the first thing we, we see is, is the greeting. And that's in verse, verse uh, 1. That says, To the messenger or angel of the church in Ephesus. And then there's a command. And, and who's, who's the one speaking these? Jesus is the vision of Je of Jesus in chapter at the end of chapter one. Now you have this this vision of this guy, this the one that looks like a, a man uh, who then has all these characteristics that we we read through. Now is saying this is the message I want you to write for this church in this town. 
And so that's in the first century letters, the greeting was always first, or the, the person you were writing to was always first, so you knew uh, this, was, um, this was what the message was for that person. Number two, the, the second thing, a title from the vision in chapter one. So when you start looking at verses, verse one, what is the, the title of Jesus that we see from the vision in chapter one? He holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. So every single letter that you look at the of the seven churches will start off this way, and that's why that vision of Jesus. And again, it's not John isn't seeing this and is saying, "Hey, you as an artist, you need to paint this." But each one of those, we went kind of through the symbolism last week of what these all mean. The, the seven stars represent what, if you remember? Seven stars were seven. The messengers. The seven golden lampstands were the seven churches. And you can see that at the very last verse in chapter, uh, chapter 1. The mystery of the seven stars that you see in my right hand are the seven golden in the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so he is holding them where? In his right hand. Right hand, sign of power, authority. In other words, Jesus is in control of the seven churches. Ephesus thought they were in control, the town of Ephesus thought that they were in control of Azer Minor. Everything had to go through them. That circular road started with them. And it really is that reminder is you're not as important as you think you are. Jesus has the final authority. Jesus is overall. But also he walks where he's in the midst of the golden lampstands. In other words, he, he, he is, is there with you all there in these cities. And then it goes to the I know section. And here... Verse 2, the I know, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work or labor, your perseverance. And what does it mean to persevere? The keep going, that you don't give up. And again, our English translations, because of the way the English language is, uh, they put, they, they divide these into multiple sentences. This is one big on run on sentence which is the reason why the English professors cut this up because it just doesn't, it's not good English. Um, it says, I know your deeds, your, your labor, hard work, your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate what? Evil. Evil. Or some translations will say wicked people. It's more general. You won't tolerate evil at all. And then it keeps on going. And you tested, or and you test, those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. And again, our English translations will stop there, but it keeps on going. And you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So there's one... Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, and again, when you read Ephesians chapter 1 in our English translations, you'll see, ver you'll see sentences and paragraphs. That is one, right after the introduction where Paul says, you know, I, Paul, a servant of uh, Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ, the church in Ephesus, uh, grace and peace to you, and he says a few other things, and then it is one giant run-on sentence. And again, it's, it's incredible when you think about it. And it's complex uh, how Paul writes, but he was a brilliant man. Uh, so, so, so it was not unheard of to do that. But as Jesus is saying here is, I know who you are. And let's uh, work our way through this a uh, little bit. So he says, I know your deeds, I know your labor, I know your perseverance and so your ability to hang on. I know that you do not tolerate or or wickedness or evil that you test whom 
claims to be apostles. That was a huge problem in the early church. You had how many apostles in in the Bible did you, did we have? Twelve. Typically, that's what we say. Twelve. What does the word apostle mean? One who is sent. It's interesting when you look at it again. You can pull out your Greek concordance, not Greek, uh, English uh, um, concordance, and and look up the word apostle, and you'll see that Barnabas is called an apostle, Silas is called an apostle. That you have all these other people that were called an apostles. They weren't the original twelve apostles, but they were apostles because they were sent by either the church in Jerusalem. You think of you think of uh, Saul, who becomes uh, well known as the, the Paul. He becomes an apostle. Uh, he is sent. He's not one of the original twelve, but he is sent. And so you you have this term. And so what happens in the early churches is people would be showing up in this town in, in, in here in Ephesus, and they would be like, "Hey, we've been sent by by the church in Jerusalem. They didn't tell you the whole story about the gospel of Jesus. We have this special knowledge, this special revelation, this special wisdom that that they didn't tell you fully." And Paul all the time was constantly again second corinthians he deals with that they call he calls them these super apostles in quotation marks because they thought they were better than the normal apostles and so what he's saying here is i know that when these false apostles come in these people that claim to be sent but they're not and that's what he said but they weren't sent by by anybody you tested to make sure but what they were teaching was accurate. And then he says, and you found them to be what? Liars or false. They tested it by, by what? Uh, anything about the believers there in Ephesus? Uh, who, who wrote a letter to the, the believers there in Ephesus? Paul did. Paul spent years in Ephesus. John, the apostle, lived in Ephesus before he went sent to Patmos. So when he says to the church in Ephesus, he knows these believers that he's writing to this message. And so they they used, in a real sense, they used Paul's letter. They used what Paul had given to them. Uh, they used what John had given to them. And, and, and uh, the Gospels were written by this time. Uh, the Gospel of John probably was written in Ephesus and they had uh, so forth by this time. Uh, so they had, in a real sense, they had the beginnings of uh, the, the Word of God, the New Testament, to be able to discern is what this person is saying true or not. Yep. 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 I got a we got an email um, this morning from somebody that uh, that is wrestling with some of the the NAR, new apostolic uh, reformation stuff that we've worked through with the church and so they they uh, emailed me and said you know it's so difficult nowadays to know and, and in America and I was thinking about that. And in America, it, I think the reason why is 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 so difficult is because a lot a lot of us grew up with this understanding that that generally speaking, what churches taught was good, and it didn't matter what denomination. Um, the United Methodists, uh, 30, 40 years ago, was a solid denomination. The Southern Baptists. Was is and it continues to be a solid denomination, and you had all these you know, Presbyterian, like you, each and every one of them, thirty years ago, taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. And nowadays, we're almost we're almost have to force ourselves to become more like the Bereans and become more like the the believers there in Ephesus, where we got to put on our critical thinking hats and being like, 
just because this guy claims to be a pastor, is he really teaching the truth? I mean, we should have been doing that all along, but I think we just got lax in that. Um, where we nowadays we have to constantly be be thinking about those things and testing what is being said according to what's our standard, the scriptures, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and the, the church in Ephesus was doing a great job, Jesus says. You, you've been doing this. And it's been fantastic. And you've endured hardships because you rejected some of these teachings. And and you've, you've, you're doing a great job. But then we get to the criticism and we realize there's something a little bit wrong here. Verse 4. But I hold this against you. What have they lost? They lost their first love. And basically, when you read through the rest of this, what they were what they were doing is this. They were doing all the right things in the sense they were testing, they were making sure what what they they weren't tolerating the wicked, but they forgot why they were supposed to do that. And it was because of their love for God. I hold this against you. You gave up your first love. Referring to that relationship with Christ. So there so in a real sense, what was happening in, in, in Ephesus is is they they almost made it to the point where it was a what what we call an academic um, thing for them, where they were testing everything and they were but yet they weren't but their heart wasn't in it. They were just they lost the reason why they were doing the things that they were doing. And so, in verse 5, and this is part continuing that part of the criticism side of things, Jesus gives them, kind of says, okay, this is, you're doing great, but you lost your first love, you lost the reason why you're doing it, so here are three commands of what I want you to do. The first one is, verse 5, what does Jesus say? Remember. Remember. Remember how far you have fallen. Or remember from where you came from. In other words, remember what your life was like before Christ. And how when you heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ, you responded in the joy of your salvation that we talk about and the the excitement of understanding that your sins are forgiven. Remember how Christ Worked in your life at that point of salvation. Secondly, what does it go on to say? Repent. repent. That repent simply means change your ways. That word, you know, we usually talk about repentance in the in the gospel of Jesus. What that that we understand we're a sinner, we're going in this direction, and that we repent and we change and we're they were opposite 180, and that's what um, that's what uh, Jesus is telling the church here to change. You know, just don't go through this these motions just as an academic rigor anymore. Understand that the reason why you're doing what you're doing is to make sure that you are walking in obedience to Christ and repent of, of this, this hardness, if you want to say this, this hardness of heart just going through the motions. And then the third one is, is what? Do what you did first. When It's interesting when you look back I came to know Jesus as I became a follower of Jesus at the age of five, and and as I was grew up in my elementary years and, and in the high school, I mean the the hunger that I had and the desire that I had of following Christ and the the times that I would uh, I mean I would read through God's Word and spend time in God's Word and journal uh, and, and so forth. And then all of a sudden, graduate from high school, life happens. You go to college, get married, busyness of life. And what happens so many times? You lose that, that, that desire. Same thing with our spouses, isn't it? You're dating your spouse and you want to spend every single moment with that person. I remember 
when when I first met Marguerite, we were on doing the street evangelism in in uh, the city of Atlanta. I was a junior. Marguerite was a a a uh, freshman. I was in charge of our our area, so I wanted to spend time with Marguerite. So what I what did I do as a leader? I purposely would put Marguerite in my group so that we could spend time together. She didn't know that initially until I think afterwards, after a couple of weeks. Figure it out. Figure it out so. <laughs> so, Mary, the first, uh, our first, we were joking around. The first, uh, our first date was when uh, we were walking across the capital of uh, the Atlanta, and uh, and I made up some goofy uh, song about the the rats in uh, in uh, in Atlanta and so forth. Uh, so, so yeah, some exciting times. So. So the singing that they sing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Romantic, <laughs> I know. Rats and uh, yeah, we, we always joked around that if if homeless people would go hungry and and they didn't have food, just kill a rat and fry it up a little bit because I mean they were they were they were that big uh, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating. It's not like I like a fish that big. No, it, they were some of them were that big. Yeah, they were large kittens. And so it's the same thing. We want to spend time with our, our spouse. We, and then all of a sudden you get married and what happens? Within a matter of, of months, you're just like, oh. And there's that, yeah. And there's that, re, and there's that relationship aspect that you have to keep working at it. Or what happens so many times within... People will wake up and they and, and 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 they look at each other and they're like, we're complete strangers now. Which is why what happens a lot why a lot of people get divorced by that time. Because that relationship they say, Oh, we fell out of love. No, they didn't fall out of love, they just didn't work at their relationship, and then there were these fears that were just orbiting in their house. And so you and that's the same thing in spiritually. When we come to know Jesus, we're amped. We're like, yeah, this is great. The gospel of Jesus. I want to know more about Jesus. And then as we go on, that, that love for Christ sometimes can cool down. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Do what you did first. You know, look at those. What did you do the first time you came to know Christ? What are some of the things that you did? And if you're not doing them again, start doing them again so that that love for God starts to rekindle. Very quickly, you go through the other ones. Warning. So what's the warning in this? He's going to uh, um, take them away. Uh, verse, uh, repent, do what uh, uh, I will come to you. And of verse uh, 5, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Uh, symbolic of of what? What do you think? If you're you're if you're snuffing out a, a lampstand, what you're you're killing the mm-hmm. killing the light. In other words, God, Jesus is saying, "Listen, like I'm I'm going to come and and in a real sense shut you down, that you'll no longer be able to." Um, again, the the lampstands representing the churches, how the how we as believers are are that light, uh, and that we are to be um, that that salt and that light to our our world, our community, and in in real sense, Jesus says you're going to get snuffed out. There is a little bit added there that is also part of this. Yes, he's going to come and he's going to bring judgment. But verse 6 kind of goes back and says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of Nicolaitans. We'll see that again. It was a, a, a false a sense of false teachers. We're not going to get into it tonight because it's already where our time is, is uh, pretty much done. Uh, but it is just that he's saying, I, you're going to pull through. Is in other words, what Jesus is saying there. You're going to do... It, it, you'll... you'll You'll do this. And historically what happens is they did. They listened to this. They repented. And they found their first love again in God. Uh, exhortation. Uh, he who has an ear. Of course, as in verse uh, 6. 
Um, sorry, verse 7, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, it's just that understanding of, of those, those who pay, atten- pay attention to this. Pay attention to this message. And of course, a promise, uh, very last thing, to the one who is victorious, or the one who overcomes, who is victorious in this. In other words, the one who responds to this message, repents, and 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 walks in obedience to the Christ. The promise is this: that I will give them the right to eat what from the tree of life, which is where in in heaven. The paradise of God. Same word when Jesus is on the cross and he says to, to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me where? In paradise. In other words, the word paradise is, is the, the term used for, for king's gardens. And what Jesus is really saying to the thief on the cross is today you're going to be walking with me uh, in, in my house there in heaven. And we'll see the tree of life again towards the end where the, where again is talking about heaven and, and it's representative of of those who persevere those who are, who are victorious that listen to this message they will have eternal life there with God in heaven they will make it to the end they will be overcomers and victorious and so and though we have uh, there's been a lot of um, yeah, we have talked a lot about stuff tonight. So between a uh, little bit of everything, um, but uh, just that, that again, that reminder of you know, so, so easy, so easy for us to be just like the church in Ephesus, where again we're doing all the right right things. Where especially, I mean, we here as because of this, some of the conversations that we have had over the past two years as as a church. It's so easy for us to get into that. It's like, oh, we got to, uh, we're doing all the right things. We're testing everything, but we forget why we're supposed to be doing that. And that is because of our love for God, to stand upon the truth of His Word, because we desire to walk in obedience to Him, to live a holy life because of what He has done for us. And we live a holy life in the way of that's, I mean, that's not what our, our act of worship's all about is what Paul says, Romans chapter twelve. You know, therefore, in view of God's mercy, in view of this great compassion of God, offer yourselves as these living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing. This is your spiritual act of worship. We don't live our lives in obedience to Christ because out of drudgery, we do it because we just say, Lord Jesus Thank you. Thank you for that great gift of salvation. In the church in Ephesus, that's what they forgot. And that's the exhortation or the challenge that Jesus gives them. Remember your first love. Remember how you felt and what you did when you first understood the gospel of Jesus Christ.